On day 102 of living in the Czech Republic, I felt it. I had taken a tram I rarely used to an unfamiliar neighborhood in Prague. For the months that I had been living in this city, I'd yet to find any reason to explore the area I was headed to. I was headed there for the anxiety-provoking adult responsibility of applying for healthcare. I was 20. I needed to renew it for the last two months of my stay in Prague, a city that I was getting more enamored with every day. It felt like falling in love with someone for the first time. I got off at the tram stop and searched around for an ATM. Once I found it, I didn't translate the Czech instructions beeping at me because well, I had started to understand this bastardized language. Not fluently, but I could get around. I extracted several colorful Czech kronas, which could accidentally be mistaken for monopoly money. If these pieces of paper were found in my homeland, their large cash value would be stored away in a hashborough box next to tiny plastic red houses and miniature metal thimbles collecting dust in a closet. But here, they had worth. I took the bills and folded them carefully into my left pocket of my spring jacket and started walking. I looked around and I couldn't find the sign of where I was supposed to go. This was years before I would get my first iPhone, so the address was written in my chicken scratch handwriting. I stood on the sidewalk as I tried to interpret my own hieroglyphics. It hasn't gotten any better with age. Then an old Czech woman with magenta hair and penciled in eyebrows that sagged heavily over her eye sockets walked by. I go up to her and brutally murder her own language to her face in order to figure out where this office was. Her caving face made it hard for me to interpret her expression. Was she annoyed? Flattered? Farting? I couldn't tell. But she looked around and then she shuffled me towards a building only 20 feet away. I hate carrying large sums of money. During our walk, my hand would repeatedly plunge into my pocket in fear that my jacket had miraculously split a hole large enough for the money to fall out, then fall onto the ground and immediately be swallowed by the earth. For 10 seconds, I was calmed by the familiar folds I had already worn in this fresh bundle of cash. But what if taking my hand out also pulled the money out and it would tumble onto the ground and be swept away by a passing raptor whisked away into the sky? Okay. It was only $40, a seemingly laughable amount of money to be paying for two months of universal health care, but a minor expense here. The Czech granny pointed to a door and left. I walked in and up to the desk where an Uma Thurman doppelganger sat. I asked her in Czech if she spoke English. We all speak English, she replied, with a pair of vocal cords that seemed to have forgotten how to laugh. I try not to judge her austereness in comparison to my often overbearing but mildly insincere friendliness we are conditioned to have in the States. Americans stuff every moment with noise, the small talk, how's the weather, and questions we ask but don't really care about the answer to. Anything to fill the stillness. But the Czechs don't care about silence. If anything, they prefer it. Their faces don't contort as they desperately scan their brains to find some trifle statement to say to a stranger. They just stare at you and let the silence settle, the confetti falling onto the floor. 
It's some getting used to, but after learning this country's history and living there for a while, I respected that they had a different social system in place. And who am I to judge anyways? It made me more reflective of how inauthentic Americans can be sometimes, how we can't sit in the peace of the moment. I liked not having to prove myself to a stranger for a moment. Uma, too, still assisted me, without smiling, but still helpful. She brought me some paperwork, told me where to sign it, took the money, and I left. I now had the rest of the day to slowly meander back to my dorm, only using my acquired sense of the city. I didn't have a compass or Google Maps to guide me. I soon found a familiar street and began to dwaddle up Petron Hill. The scenery on the road back to my dorm was split between the purple rolling hills, awakened by a new spring, and the enchanting red rooftop buildings. I was surrounded by the perfume of sausage and lilacs. Once I reached the top of the hill, I was almost home. This was the first international city I ever got to experience. Back home in my small country town, I had no idea that something so magnificent existed and that I could one day witness it. No Google image search could have replicated the feeling of standing there. I watched the people around me. Old couples, international students, and parents with their children all walking up and around the park, coming in and out of stores, or slowly bending over to pick up a coin on the side of the street. I had no idea that these people existed. They all have their own complex lives filled with their own celebrations, heartbreaks, and hopes completely outside my own life. I merely brushed up against them when crossing the street or reaching for my beer at the bar. Right there, walking beside these strangers might be the only time my life grazes against theirs. I had this feeling... It was, it was somewhere between feeling tiny and ignorant. But it, it overwhelmed me and I enjoyed it. I was learning so much more outside of the required classes I needed in order to get a credit for the semester. I was learning about a culture, a history, a way of life I had no idea existed parallel to my own. Thousands of people with their own history that had nothing to do with me. I loved that feeling of being small, of not knowing something and having this chance to learn. To be honest, I didn't even know where Prague was on a map before I left. And now I was upended with an entire new worldview. I discovered a new delight of learning and exploring this world walking through Wenceslas Square and envisioning the peaceful protests of the Velvet Revolution, standing under a castle that was older than the country I had come from, drinking beer that had been perfected for the last 500 years. It was a place I had no idea was real and coexisted beside my own. And if this was just one city in one country, then what was the rest of the world like? Today on the episode, we're growing. We will talk to travelers who have had clear moments of change, who burst out of their cocoon and went through a metamorphosis 
towards a better, more awakened person. From peeing in new places to backpacking in your 50s, we will explore stories where individuals go through growing pains, growth spurts, and find a new sense of maturity because they left the comforts of home. No need a letter from your parents on this episode, because we are growing up. I'm Adrian Bain, and this is Strangers Abroad. Here we go. I believe that going on exchanges in your late teens or early 20s is one of the best ways to build character. Obviously, it seems fun, but it actually kicks the shit out of you. You think you're going to have these wild adventures, love affairs, stay out until 5 in the morning clubbing, hitchhike around a new country, which you will absolutely do. But the growth mainly comes from navigating that new landscape and culture. It's not just trying to understand the street signs or the subway stops, but also figuring out which one is the fucking shampoo. Wait, what did I order? And this is what their toilets look like? There is this teenage arrogance that you believe you know everything. It's some psychological phenomenon I'll never understand. Mainly because I went through that phase, and I know I'm not the only one. Travel has a way of making you grow up real quick. That's how Adriana, the creator of Travelpreneur and a study abroad advisor, felt the first time she left the country. Growing up in Miami, she was surrounded by Spanish influence, and she wanted the gift of being bilingual. So in college, she declared Spanish as her major. She was going to master this language. And when the opportunity came, her sophomore year, to go to Spain for six weeks, it seemed like the perfect way to level up. Um, And so when an advisor came into my classroom, she presented this perfect summer program it was amazing in my head. I had never before that time knew what study abroad was, uh, had the opportunity to do so because I was a first or was a first generation college student at the time. So my mom had never gone to college. Uh, my father isn't in my life. So I didn't know if he had gone to college and he wasn't there to kind of help me get through it. So I'm like, okay, I need to do this. Okay, I got this. And so after class, I like ran to my dorm room, kind of open the application, apply within that next hour. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I need to tell, I need to tell my mom. <laughs> like I did, it wasn't a discussion beforehand. Like, should I, should I not? And so I called her while I was in front of my computer and I said, hey, mom, I'm going to Spain this summer. And literally like it was nothing on the other side of the phone. Like she didn't say, hey, congratulations. Oh, what do you mean you're going to Spain? It was like dead silence. So I knew then it, w- it would have been a struggle to not only convince my mom I should go, but also kind of the encouragement that I needed. The people who help us grow can sometimes be the ones that hold us back. The ones who held us when we took our first stumbling steps might not recognize the growth we still need to go through. The idea of walking around the world on our own might bump up against the walls your loved ones have put around themselves. But Adriana didn't allow her mom's lack of support to thwart her decision to go overseas. She got all her ducks in order, 
her application was filled out, she got financial aid and a scholarship, and ordered her passport. So everything was falling into place. I'm like, yes, I'm ready to go. And then we had a pre-departure orientation. I don't know what it was, but as the advisor was explaining, going through like tips, you know, to maneuver in the Spanish culture, kind of like, you know, learning the language, culture shock came up. And I'm like, man, I can't, whatever, whatever that is, it's not going to happen to me. Homesickness, man, I'm away from college, you know, at college already. I can do this. And so I kind of like blocked those different terms and like what the advisor was saying out. And it's kind of like, I got this instantly. I have never been out of the country. I'd never even been out of the state of Florida. So I didn't even understand why I was thinking this way. So fast forward to the day of the trip fly. It was my first time on a plane. I was nervous. I managed to kind of do nine hours without crying and I arrived in Madrid, our first stop for the program. And once I got off the plane, I looked around. I'm like, oh, this is just like Miami. And I said to myself, oh, wow. I mean, everyone knows Miami is the center of the world. I don't know where that came from, but I really believe that. So I looked outside, saw graffiti on the walls, cars passing by. And I'm like, okay, I can do this. Six weeks, psh, that's nothing. And so I met up with my group. We did a little tour, went to the hotel, and I met some of my like peers and, and my roommate. And we started hanging out. We went to a little bar, had some tapas, had a little drink, and we got to know one another. And then when I came back, we had a meeting, like an orientation meeting, opening, welcoming meeting. And the leader, she had, was speaking in Spanish. So primarily, we spoke in Spanish around each other. And she was spewing out like, the itinerary for the next day. And she said a time. She said we were going to meet at 10. Well, I thought she said 1040. Comprehension. I'm like, okay, I got this. I understood what she said. And she gave us a map. I really didn't pay attention to the map. I didn't pay, pay attention to what, where we were going. It kind of just like seeped in and out, like went in one ear and out the other. Don't know where this person is, <laughs> what this person was. And so the next day comes, we wake up, we have our little morning breakfast, a buffet style, really nice hotel. And then I decided to go back upstairs to grab like my jacket and like some other things like my map and whatnot. So I can, we can head out as a group. I go upstairs and I realize something is off. I don't see anyone else upstairs grabbing their things. And I'm like, hold up. So I run downstairs and the lobby was empty. I'm checking my time, like the time on the wall. And I'm like, where is everyone? I panicked. I run out of the hotel, no map in hand, no jacket, nothing to, to kind of help me figure out where my group was. I run outside and I go up to this older man and I broke in Spanish, not <laughs> knowing any word at the time because I'm like so nervous, so panicked. And I couldn't even communicate what I wanted to ask him. I wanted to know where was a museum. I couldn't even remember how to say where was something. That's simple, right? Donde esta and whatever you wanted to go, right? I can't even remember that because I was such in a panic. That frustrated me even more because I had gone through high school in Spanish, a few semesters of Spanish in college, and I should have known those words. I could have even said that phrase in my sleep, but at that moment, of this frustration of getting lost and getting left behind, I could not. I could not. 
which was like next door. So I run around, I'm running around Spain, I'm getting lost, I'm cutting down streets, crossing, crossing the streets, not really realizing there's traffic passing me by, right? And so I get to a building that looks like a museum and I'm like, I don't know if this is it. I think they said they're going to the museum this morning. I peek around, walk around, and I'm like brushing around and I see a guard, but I'm too afraid to go up to the guard because one, my Spanish isn't that good. And if it was anything that what, like it was earlier, I knew I wouldn't be able to communicate that I needed to meet up with my group. So I didn't see anyone I recognized. And so I started to head back to the hotel and I'm like, no, maybe I should give it one more chance. So I walk about around a little bit more and I still don't see anyone I'm, I, I'm familiar with. And I'm like, okay, this is not happening right now. And I told, my, I, I told myself, I want to go home. Like, this is, I don't want even want to be here anymore. So I'm like, okay, I'm so frustrated. I'm like, I go back to the hotel, buy some time to get on the computer, and I emailed my mom. Like, I didn't even let her know what was happening because I knew she would have let on, like, well, you see, this is what happens when you travel someplace without your family. And I was thousands of miles away. And so I was so disappointed in myself. I was so frustrated. I'm like, okay, let me go back to the room, kind of take it easy, take a nap. And I did. Little did I know that in my dream, my dream was telling me, you're late. You need to wake up. It is 3.30. You need to be at your next tour at four o'clock. So when I woke up, sure enough, I was practically late for our next meeting spot. So here I go again, running out the hotel, no jacket, no watch. Luckily, I grabbed my map because I didn't know where I was going. I, the, we went to El Palacio del Real, and that was at least 40 45 minutes away from where we were. So I'm running, kind of navigating the city, just kind of cutting corners, looking at the clock. And I'm like, I'm going to be late. 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 And not knowing where I was going. I'm alone, a soul woman on the street, a tourist, not knowing where to go. And I was just, again, so frustrated. I'm like, this can't be happening. Like, I thought I got had this. I really thought I had this. And like, I needed my mom at the time. I wanted my family. I needed wanted comfort because, again, I was in, in a city I didn't know. You know, in a city I didn't know how to speak the language. Like, it's not someone I can speak to in English. Like, I was so lost. And so I got to the meeting spot. Look around, no one there. And I'm like, this can't be happening. Why, why, why? And so I did see a professor. She had, too, um, gotten left behind. And so we kind of had had a conversation and we decided that we would do tour ourselves. And so we did. And while I had a good time, I was still so disappointed in myself that one, I couldn't be at the place I needed to be. There was a miscommunication, not necessarily on, on the behalf of the leader, but on myself and comprehending she said. And not verifying if I had any questions. And, you know, I was too embarrassed to raise my hand to kind of confirm the time. And it just made me that much more humble. And that was a period over the next few weeks, I realized there was culture shock. You know, the language barrier, the homesickness. I thought my Spanish was like, I can maneuver through a country without a native standing next to me. I started doubting my capability to maneuver this Spanish thing, this Spanish course. Of course, I wanted to become a Spanish major and become fluent, but again, if I can navigate or comprehend what the leaders are telling me, could I really do this? 
And even throughout the six week period, even when I was staying in my, my, with my homestay family, my host family, it made me so appreciative of where I was. Adriana recognized that she had some major growing up to do. She couldn't just assume that she knew Spanish without talking to people or figure out how to get around without actively exploring every day. But she was like a seed pushing through the dirt to grow. And like the steady expansion of a sprout, Adriana took it one day at a time. At the end of those six weeks, she definitely wasn't the same anymore. And only being like the first generation student and the only African-American woman on my program, it made me believe that I could do this. The challenge that she found in Spain was so profound that it's influenced what she does today. While working in a study abroad office, she tries to give her students a heads up. You know, and I am so grateful for the experience because that was a start of who I am today. Like I work in a study abroad office in South Carolina at a South Carolinian college. And I get to talk with students about, you know, and, you know, encouraging them to go out and experience in the world, get outside of their comfort zone. But I also talk about those obstacles, one being my mom, but also being your own obstacle in your mindset. Just, you know, appreciating the culture, appreciating the people and the diverse groups that you get to interact with in your program and in the, in the country. So that day I always reflect and I always talk about because literally if I, if I hadn't had that experience, I'd probably be still walking around here thinking Miami was the center of the world. That was the best, 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 worst experience ever in my life. I think another benefit to studying abroad is it teaches you not to fear the world. Like the fears that the world is scary or that strangers are dangerous. Those thoughts will only get worse the less you travel, which will then inhibit you from exploring at all. You get caught in a vicious cycle. But when we travel in our youth, it emboldens us to take more risks as an adult and help us endlessly enrich our life. But we all approach it in different ways. Some of us face our fears by bungee jumping over Makua Tower in China. But for others, it's just getting off the plane. That's how Brian Berlin, a New York City storyteller and host of the podcast Love Hurts, felt the first time he went to London during his study abroad exchange. I was not really an adventurous person. Like I had really only been out of the country once all of my friends in college were going on these abroad trips and all of these exotic places. And I thought it was cool that they were doing that, but I did not want to do that myself. Like it felt like too adventurous for me, but I felt like I still wanted to experience some kind of a broad thing. And in the school I went to had a half semester program over the summer and I went to London and London felt like the safest place to go because they spoke English and it was wasn't really out of my comfort zone, but I was doing something crazy that I wouldn't do normally. And the big unknown about this trip was I was going with this group of 25 students and I didn't know any of them. And that was like a big deal for me at the time. And I remember getting to London the first day and getting settled in and we all went out to a bar and got food. And I remember walking into the bathroom and they just had those trough urinals, which are like 
Those like they're just big, long, like basin things that go across the entirety of a men's room and everyone's just expected to kind of pee there with no dividers in the middle. And I am not that person. Like I really like a divider in between urinals and if it's not, I will just pee in the stall and I'm overwhelmed. This is my first experience abroad and I'm like, oh God, what am I supposed to do here? And then that night for dinner, we go to another bar and it's got the same trough urinal. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm gonna make it in London. And so I'm really overwhelmed. And other than that though, I was loving the city. Like London was sort of this perfect match for me as a city. And I am somebody who, when I enter a city, I just wanna know it. Like I want to feel like a local and I would take the subway to random stops and then just find my way back walking to our apartments because I wanted to see how the city connected and connect in my brain. And you know, it was before we had smartphones. So I actually became the person in our group who was relied on for directions a lot of the time. And I really liked the group that I was with. Like I was getting along with these people and we would go out and we'd have these big, like go out at night and do a lot of stuff. But I didn't love being in the big group. Like I wanted to feel like a local. I wanted to fit in and you can't fit in when you're in a group of 25, like loud Americans walking on the streets of London. Like there's no way that people are like, oh, they must be from here. Like they know you're not and I hated that, but I was always relied upon to get people home because I knew how the city worked. And my nickname when we were in London was BPS because we didn't have GPS. So I was the Brian positioning system and I would lead everyone home. And I was basically like the group dad. Like that was truly my dynamic. Like I'd be the one on the sidewalks trying to be like, hey guys, keep it down. Like you're making a scene, we're being loud. Like, hey, there's people trying to come on the sidewalk. And I'd always be the one who didn't drink as much and, and make sure that like other people were safe and getting home okay. And that was my role in this group. And for five weeks, I was that. And it was fun to be that person. Like, I, that's who I am. But at a certain point, I was kind of like, oh, I'm tired of just like taking care of drunk people. And I feel like the other thing that would happen a lot is I would want to just hang out in a small group of friends. Like I had five close friends and I'd want to just hang out with them, but we always had to hang out with the group. And I'd just be like, oh, can we not, can we just like do our own thing? And I, I just felt like I wanted to have a fun night. And, you know, it's where we have like a few days left in London at this point, maybe like three nights because it's our last week there. And, you know, I, I kind of mentioned to one of my friends like, hey, I just, I feel like I've just been not having fun. I know I'm not the most fun person, but I want to have a fun night. And my friend is like, oh, we should call Igor. And Igor <laughs> was this Italian guy who we met in uh, Piccadilly Circus, which is like the Times Square of London. He was, you know, one of those guys like handing out flyers type thing, being like, oh, hey, do you guys want to have a good time? And we were already on our way somewhere else. But he like gave my friend his phone number being like, if you want to have a good time, let me know. I'll get you like free bottle service at this club. It'll be great. And so my friend's like, we got to call Igor to have this great night. And I truly, I'm not a club person if it wasn't like clear after everything else I've said to this point, but there was this prospect of like, oh, free drinks for the night. Like that sounds really nice. I'll go. And so I show up at this club, but it was just the bar. It was like, there was some mirrors and some flashing lights, but it was a bar and the first thing that I was like, oh, this is not going to be the way I want it to be is we get there at 10 and it is empty. We are the only people there. 
And they're like, oh, the bottle service isn't ready yet, so you can just buy some drinks at the bar until then. And I'm like, well, this isn't what I signed up for. And so I'm trying to be like the guy who's loose and having a good time, but I'm not going to spend like overpriced money on these drinks. And very quickly, my friend Amy, she had drank an entire bottle of champagne before we got to this club. And now she's like two drinks into this club. And she is just sprawled out on this couch and she's really drunk and she's pulling everything out of her purse and handing it to me. She's like, oh, here's my lipstick. Here's my gum. Here's my wallet. Here's my keys. I was like, okay, Amy, we need to keep all these in your purse. Like, she literally takes everything out, hands it to me. I put it all back in and, like, put her purse down. And I'm just like, Amy's got to get home. Like, this is bad. I Nobody else is paying attention to her. I got to get her home. And so I go to my friends. I'm like, I, I got to bring Amy home. And at this point, the bottle service has just come out. So they're like, oh, it's here. Like, have a drink before you go. And so I think for, like, 20 minutes I can have a drink and our other friend is watching Amy at this point and so I'm having this drink I'm trying to like not be the dad and just enjoy myself and then I hear like a commotion coming from where Amy is and I'm like oh what is going on I walk over and she is screaming at this group of people because she thinks they've stolen her passport out of her purse and I am like trying to size up the situation. I have people from my group of friends that are now coming and arguing with these people. Security is there threatening to kick us out. And the thing is, I know that Amy's passport was never in her purse because she handed me everything in her purse earlier, like a half an hour beforehand. And I saw that there's no passport. And I know it's just like in her apartment. But she's freaking out. She's like, I definitely brought it. I definitely brought it. And so I have to take her home. And we get there and we open her like nightstand and her passport is sitting right there and it was fine. And I get her to bed. And then I just remember like going back at this point, everyone's still out having fun and I'm not really in a mood to go back out there. And I just sit in our like dorm room area and I'm watching just this weird reality show. It's sad. And I'm like, what am I doing? This is not fun. And I, the next day I wake up and I think it's, it's either our last night in London or our second to the last night in London. And I'm just like, I got to have a fun night. Like, this was not fun. This isn't what I wanted to do to begin with. I'm going to my favorite bar. Anybody can come if they want to come. But this is what I'm doing tonight. Like, I was like, fuck the group. Fuck this club scene. Like, I want to go to my bar that I love. And I think everyone realized that, like, uh, Brian's, like, not happy. And this bar is kind of cool. So we all went to this bar together. And we get there. And, it, and it's, it's great because it's, like, this place that I feel comfortable at. And... I'm having a few drinks and, and I'm not having to worry about other people and keeping taking care of them. And there's a moment where I'm a few drinks in and I'm not drunk, but I'm feeling like, oh, yeah, this is fun. And that's when I meet Maggie. And, and Maggie is uh, also an American. Like the whole time I was kind of hoping I'd meet like a British girl and we'd like fall in love when I was in England. And that didn't happen. But I did meet Maggie and Maggie was from Texas and the thing she reminded me of instantly was like Tammy Taylor from Friday Night Lights. Like she had this very like Southern charm and I was just such a fan of that show. And and I was a fan of that actress and I was just like, oh yeah, this is like my Tammy Taylor. And so I'm at the bar and I'm flirting with Maggie and my friends are all having this like fun time. And it just feels like, oh, this is what it's like to have fun and not be like the dad. And I remember at one point I'm, I'm in the bathroom and I'm peeing in the trough urinal. Like I, I like it. I, I have this like out of body moment 
where I'm peeing there and then I, I realize that I'm peeing there and I freak out like, oh my God, I'm not like in the stall just peeing by myself. Like I'm in the urinal, like people are around me and I'm peeing and it's fine. I'm a few drinks in where again, like I'm not drunk, but I'm enough where my brain is turned off. And I think that's the point where I can operate. Cause if like the second I get too much in my head, I like freak myself out. And so I'm at that point where I'm like, okay, let's not get in your head about stuff. Like you can pee in the urinals, it's fine. And so as soon as I walk out of the bathroom, Maggie's friend comes up to me and she's like, hey, Maggie's into you, like you should make a move. And I go, but um, yeah, that, that sounds great. Like I'm really into Maggie, but like we're in a bar. And she's like, yeah, but that's, you just kiss her. And I had never kissed anybody in a bar before. Like that is not what I've done. Like I, I had like one real relationship in my life. And at that point I had had like a bunch of random dates that hadn't gone nowhere. So for me, like, the prospect of kissing somebody in a bar was like a very scary thing to do, but I was like, oh, I just peed in the urinal. Like I could make out with somebody at a bar, I think. And and I'm like thinking about what to do, but again, like I'm trying to turn my brain off, but I can't. And and I uh, and I'm talking to Maggie, and she's like, Oh, my friend's making out with some guy. And I turn around, and the same friend that just told me to make out with Maggie is making out with this guy across the bar. And then I see her like open her eyes as she's making out with this guy and gives her me this little like, you should do it, like giving her a little nod to me. And I go, I think your friend wants us to make out to Maggie. And she's like, oh, well, how do you feel about that? It's like, oh, I'd be into it if you are. Cause I don't, I'm not like smooth enough to just kiss her. I need to like have this conversation. And so we start kissing and it's great. Like it truly is this like really fun moment. And I can like, again, have this out-of-body experience of, like, seeing this bar and everyone hanging out and the two of us just kissing in the middle of it. And at one point, I open my eyes and I just see, like, a group of my friends that are seeing me making out with this girl, and they're all, like, freaking out. The way that you would see, like, if you saw your divorced dad, like, making out with somebody for the first time when you wanted him to, like, find love. Like, that was the look they were giving me. Like, Dad, you're doing it. Like, yes. Like, that was the look. And it was just enough for me to get like out of my head again, into my head again, and be like, oh God, this I'm freaking out. I gotta, I'm in a bar making out. I gotta stop. And so we stop and it, and I was just like, ah, yeah, that was really nice. Like maybe we can go get some fresh air. And and the the four of us, like me and Maggie and her friend and the guy that he was she was making out with, uh, we all walk and like we just wander the city. And it was kind of like Again, my favorite activity in London was just sort of wandering the streets and we walked from this bar all the way back to where I lived. And then they were like, oh shoot, we have a flight in like three hours, like we gotta go. And so they leave and Maggie and I kiss right before she gets in the cab and she goes off and I never see her again. Like that's the last I see of her. But it felt really nice for once to just like not be the dad and to be able to just pee in a urinal without freaking out about it. Lots of times the fear is actually worse than reality. We all get blown over by our own emotional hurricanes that throw us back and forth between worry, anxiety, and catastrophizing. It can leave us wrecked and paralyzed if we let it take hold of us too much. But when we snap out of our brains and look at what our lives are like, we can see how everything is typically okay. I asked Brian what were the biggest changes he saw in himself once he got comfortable with his fear. There's something like very 
safe, I guess, in a way when you're in a position like that where you're not going to see this person. Like, I, I'm not seeing people that I'm going to see on a regular basis. And if I make a move and it's the wrong thing to do, then I have to be around this person. Like, there was something freeing about being abroad and not having this stress of like, oh, well, what happens if this doesn't work? Like, oh, we'll never see each other again anyway. And it was, it changed the way I've interacted with people. And I don't know if that would have happened as quickly as it happened if it wasn't me taking this opportunity to go abroad to find that out. I think that what happened to Brian happens to many of us when we travel. The areas that we need to grow in the most are expedited when we're outside of our homeland. We go through a growth spurt. And this goes for risk takers as well. Everyone endures growing pains. Muscles stretch, brains expand, pants shrink. But it can be a satisfying pain, knowing that you're getting comfortable in difficult and different situations. A raw pain that only comes with trying new hobbies, exploring new cities, and talking to more strangers. It leaves you smiling because you know you've pushed yourself. On the other side of that pain is joy, which helps you remember that it was worth the struggle all along. That's how John Barr felt when he first jumped off the edge and plunged himself into a new career track. Since college, he had been steadily raising the bar when it came to his career, starting in radio and he transitioned into television. And around his 30th birthday, he was looking to level up. Now, after 10 years of doing it, it just came to the point where I gave myself this deadline. I said, this is your last year, you're turning 30. Uh, if you don't make a huge jump right now, if you don't go to a national level, if you don't do something really big, I felt like I was losing my passion for it a little bit. I felt like I was hitting a wall. So I had a few close calls, but I couldn't get an agent and I could not just land that national job. I was a finalist for some stuff, but it wasn't meant to be. So I took about a year off from that. And then one day I was watching YouTube. This was probably about two and a half years ago, right before my channel started. And I saw this vlogger named Casey Neistat and I had no idea what vlogging even was. I didn't even know it was a thing. I used to only watch YouTube for music videos and just random stupid stuff. I didn't realize that you could document your day with a camera. And I had this big trip to Spain coming up with Adriana, my girlfriend. And I watched him talking about things and I thought I could do something about my Spain trip. I was really looking for some kind of a creative outlet and I invested money in a camera and editing software. And I said to myself, yeah, you're, you're doing this. There was never a doubt. It's like, you're going to try this and you're just going to make videos. I had this fire that was lit for some reason about video and I still don't know why. I think it was just a, a like a natural extension for me going from being a broadcaster on TV to being more of a travel journalist slash travel lifestyle guy. So for me, it wasn't that difficult to transition in that regard, to be in front of the camera. My only goal was I'm going to document this trip on video. I had no long-term goals about being a, a, a full-time YouTuber or anything like that. It was just, I'm, I'm doing this for a few months. I bought a camera. There's no turning back. I feel that as creatives, certain mediums call to us. Whatever reason, I have no desire to create a movie on Final Cut Pro, but give me a story with some soundscapes in Hindenburg and I'm your gal. So I asked John why film felt natural to him. 
the inspiration for doing video was to document a new experience. And I think that the the timing of finding this YouTube channel of Casey Neistat and finding out this whole realm exists, I think if it weren't for travel, I never would have had the initiative to do it. I knew that I was looking for some kind of creative outlet. I just didn't know what it was until I saw this guy traveling and videoing it. And something about the, those two, that the, the merging of those two just made so much sense to me at the time that I don't actually think I would be doing video if I wasn't traveling. So I think there was this the kind of quest to see what it would be like. Because uh, I was living in New York for a few years and I just wanted a change. I wanted to see what it would be like to live in another country long term because a lot of my travels in the past were just shorter trips, a couple weeks here, a couple weeks there. I'd never gotten up and rented an apartment in a country for months and, and said, I'm just setting up shop here. But it wasn't just learning a new skill. It was learning a new skill in a completely unknown territory. I asked him if he remembers his first moment of turning on his camera and pressing record. Tons of growing pains, yeah. I was so, I was so short-sighted. I'm like, I'm filming a video right now. My only thought was what is going to... I, I don't even think at that point I even knew what the next video was going to be. I just knew I had one video to make. I'm sitting in first class on a Delta flight. I was a little nervous. Like, uh, can I, is the crew going to get mad? What do I film? I'd never done something like that before. So I really wasn't even thinking about anything but that one video. Well, as I was saying before, my background was on camera. So I never had a problem really speaking or appearing on camera. Although I think my first video, I did seem kind of nervous because I was never holding a camera by myself and staring at it and walking in public. So that actually was something that was very different for me. That was maybe the easiest though was learning how to speak on camera because I had done it before. It was a very small adjustment. The harder parts were learning to edit, learning to shoot. I would actually say learning to shoot is still my biggest weakness because that's a really difficult skill. You need steady hands, uh, you need good timing, you need a lot of things to look good, but really keeping a, like your, your hands steady is a lot easier said than done. And as far as editing is concerned, using sound correctly, knowing how to edit a video that's narrative, that keeps people's attention, you know, watch time is very important on YouTube, but so is audience retention. And if people don't stick around for your videos, if they can't make it past 30 seconds, they're not going to watch. You're going to lose everybody. Or if you're doing a 10 minute video, are you only getting two or three minutes of watch time? So learning how to edit and learning how to cut out the boring stuff in your videos, not an easy thing. John grew in ways he couldn't have anticipated, not just in hard skills like editing videos, but in soft skills as well. I think that knowing that I have an audience might not be the biggest audience on earth, but knowing that I have a steady amount of people watching me, it makes me very cognizant of what I'm filming and what I'm saying and I know that my opinion has some weight to people. So I try to get local opinions as much as I can, but I'm also very sensitive to certain things. I think I'm kind of growing in sensitivity towards like cultural issues. I try not to maybe use the wrong word to describe local people or to stereotype people. If anything, I think I, I stereotype less because I'm meeting more locals to help my videos 
you know, seem more authentic, and hopefully they are more authentic. So I think I'm just more sensitive to other people now that I'm, I'm dealing with just foreign people a lot more. That's one thing that many people don't realize about travel is that you know, the rules in the U.S. don't apply to you when you're in Mexico, when you're in Spain, that cultures are different, laws are different, and you are the guest, yeah. John has realized that he can encourage others to grow through his example. He shows people how to think outside the bucket lists and immerse themselves into the culture. One message that I'm very keen on is just traveling smarter. And this is more about how to not go to tourist trap locations, how to not always go to a all-inclusive resort, even though I did an all-inclusive resort once on my video, but it was a cheap all-inclusive. It was a deal. But like just trying to stay stay away from the tourist hordes as much as you can. I know that sometimes you have to, but meeting local people, having more authentic experiences, supporting local businesses, uh, just challenging yourself to try new things. Because I think through these videos, I have done some physical activities I've never, ever, ever would have tried in the past. Like, for example, canyoning, like jumping off cliffs, uh, zip lining stuff, uh, hiked a mountain in the Azores. And, and I think that Doing it for a video was a little selfish, perhaps, but it also forced me and made me step out of my comfort zone. And I like to tell people, like, I am not this adventure guy. I never promote myself as an adventure traveler. And whenever I'm doing a video like that, I tell, I look at the camera and I say, guys, I've never done this. I'm nervous. I like being like, completely transparent. And I hope that I've inspired some people to try some more difficult physical things just through watching the stuff. Video literally gave him a new lens to see the world through, and he started noticing things he might have normally passed by if he wasn't videotaping it. I I look at cities from the eye of what's unique about this. I try to find out what's different because I know now that when I'm vlogging, I'm going to be mentioning these things. I'll think to myself, what does this city remind me of? Or is this really unique? Why is it so unique? And I'll just look at prices of things. I'll look how people interact. I don't think I ever was such a keen observer of new cultures until I got into this video stuff. I don't think I really cared as much, but I think that the videos pushed me to explore places more. Where in the past, I was more of a go with the flow, kind of not be so ambitious when I was traveling. I would still try to do fun things, but I think video just took it to the next level. I think uh, definitely there's some cities, I don't know, let's say in Spain where I first started doing video, just walking down little alleyways. Like, I don't know if I was ever so uh, curious about just finding the little hidden alleys and stores. Oh, if I walk by a place and I know I'm going to be filming later, I'll, if a restaurant looks unique, I might peek my head in. I think I, I look more at the architecture now. Because from a filming perspective, I'm always looking for cool little details. Like in, in uh, Seville, Spain, I remember the, the balconies were really cute with the flowers hanging down. And maybe I would have seen it, maybe not. And I was really focusing a lot of my filming on the balconies and panning down and, and kind of presenting this really exotic, beautiful Spanish city where if I was just there for a week, I'd be like, okay, what's on the TripAdvisor list? Let's, let's just knock those off because I'm trying to get other people to appreciate it 
through watch, through my lens, through my eyes. So I, I think my appreciation completely has changed. I like to go to a city and find like a speakeasy bar or I like to have, a, I love lately having local guides showing me stuff. I, my dream video is to do something that only locals do, like go to a Mexican wedding, which I actually did, or go to some far-flung spot in Mexico that most tourists have never heard of. I am always, always trying to explore. It's amazing that John pivoted into a new career path when he was in his 30s. I think that as we age, we believe that growing doesn't apply to us anymore. It stops when our hormones begin to simmer. However, our growth hormone actually never turns off. Sure, it slows down when we're in our later 20s, but it's in constant production to regenerate cells all throughout the body, and they are vital to human development. I think that travel enhances that growth as well. It keeps us constantly renewing ourselves and learning about new parts of the world. It never lets us atrophy. If I may be so frank, I think that those who don't travel are stunted in their growth. They aren't getting the full nutrients that the world provides. They're experientially deficient. And that isn't to say that having a conventional life is wrong. It's what suits a lot of people. Having a fulfilling career, a family, and community is essential to our sense of purpose. But traveling connects us to our larger humanity, taps into the oneness that we are all a part of. It's vital that we keep learning. It muffles our ego and boosts our compassion. We make new discoveries and solve difficult problems. Learning is as necessary to our survival as clean air and rice. Some of us discover that later in life, like Pali Bo. Pali worked in radio his whole life in a small town in Denmark. He liked it there. He raised a family and stayed close to his two daughters. But around the time when most people are looking to settle into retirement homes, Pali started booking hostel rooms. His youngest daughter was moving into her own place, so he no longer felt tethered to Denmark. He decided to sell everything he had, and travel the world in his golden years. Then I could see that in the summer of 2016, my youngest would graduate and move out of the house uh, into her own place. So I started planning to go traveling. In the beginning, I actually thought that I was just going to go somewhere and live for a few years and then go back. Then I thought, there's so many places in the world I'd like to see. And I realized that with the work that I do, I can work anywhere and become a digital nomad. So for three years, I planned everything and, and ended up selling my house and my car and my furniture and all my stuff. That was scary. When I, when I sold my house and I was starting to sell my, my furniture, and I remember two months before my journey... The furniture was leaving my house and it was getting more and more echo. You know, the feeling when you get into a, an empty room and, and there's echo. And I had this out of my comfort zone feeling. And I thought, what the hell am I doing? Is this a big mistake? And I really didn't want to go anywhere. I just wanted to be in my own own couch in a fetal position watching Netflix or something like that. I really didn't want to go anywhere. But the second I got on the bus to the airport, 
I haven't regretted a single second. And I always wanted to be a lifelong learner. And I made myself that promise. A lot of my friends, they, they did the gap year around the world trip. I never did that. I was lucky enough to, to get a job. And that was a week after I graduated. So, so I went straight into that. But I never, ever did the gap year traveling. And then I got a family and all that. So, so actually, yeah, now I'm, I'm, I'm doing my gap years. And it's, it's kind of funny when I check myself into, into a hostel. A lot of the times, not every time, I'm the oldest guy in the hostel, but not every time. And, and I've only been turned away once. That was in Croatia. I came to a hostel and it looked cool. And they looked at me and said, we can't let you stay here. We have an age limit of, of 40. And I was like, what? And you don't even want to see my passport to know that I'm over 40? No, they wouldn't let me. And I, they said, no, the music becomes very loud. I said, I don't care. No, people are partying all the time. I said, fine by me. But they wouldn't let me stay. But that was the only time. Normally, I've, I feel welcome and, and enjoy myself, even though I'm one of the oldest guys in the in the hostels. And uh, I, I make a lot of friends around the world. And the, the age thing for me, it doesn't really matter uh, that much. Obviously, having children is a huge challenge and a way to keep growing. You ignite your love of the world into them. But they seem to be different challenges. So I asked Pale what he has learned about traveling that he didn't learn when he was a dad. My daughters are still the most important thing in my life. But having traveled for more than two years now, it's the things I've seen and experienced and learned from traveling the last two years is more than I had in, in the first 50 years of my life. It's just been amazing and it's it, it just keeps giving me so much traveling to to different cultures and 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 making friends all over the world for me that is so important i want to be a lifelong learner and it opens my mind and my senses and i thought once i started traveling the world would be smaller but actually it becomes bigger and bigger every time because uh, whenever I meet somebody that says, oh, when you go to Mexico, you got to go to Mexico City. It's my favorite city. Or you got to go to this place. Or you got to go there. So uh, f- things that are places that are not <laughs> where I plan to go, all of a sudden they are. So in that respect, the world keeps getting bigger and bigger. I'm learning so much. Pale is passing his love of learning onto his daughters. He's the antithesis of a helicopter parent. He's more like the bird that pushes the children out of the nest. I think I've always had a relationship with both my daughters where I try to, um, of course, be a role model, a model and, a, and a mentor for them in, in, in many ways, but treat them as, as adults and help them to grow as human beings all the time. But I always try to teach my daughters how to be (laughs) like travelers uh, because ever since they were very young girls whenever we went on a into an airport i would give them the ticket and said okay you figure out what to do where where do we go where do we check in what do we do with the luggage and they were looking at the screens and uh, felt that it was exciting but i wanted to teach them how to just a simple thing is how to how do you go through an airport because i could see my mother she could never do that without my dad because he's always 
done that for her. And uh, I, I wanted to uh, produce some children that when they were grown up, they could they could do that kind of thing. And when they managed to do that completely without anything going wrong or any not getting to gate on time, I felt, okay, my work here is done. Uh, they can travel now. So they can they can go wherever they want. And actually, um, because when we were in Japan, I had to leave a day before their flight back to Denmark uh, because I was invited to uh, go and, uh, and be a keynote speaker at a conference in Toronto, Canada. So I left Japan 24 hours before they did. And they had to fly from two different airports six hours apart so one was heading east and another was heading west and they had to get on connecting flights uh, one through hong kong and london and another through moscow and barcelona before they came back to denmark and they had to do that all by themselves on the other side of the world and i knew that they could do it although palette has always tried to foster a sense of independence into his daughters he knows that each of his children need different things. He recognizes that his kids are different from each other, that they need to be taught self-sufficiency a little differently. Part of his growth as a traveler and a parent is having the sensitivities to adapt to the alternative needs of his children. My oldest daughter, Amanda, was living in London for a year and a half. And my youngest daughter decided that she wanted to do that as well. And she went there and 10 days later, she went back because she was uh, suffering from anxiety attacks. This is something that she's totally fine with me sharing because she talks about it all the time on her, her YouTube channel. So she couldn't deal with being in, in, in London with a friend and her sister around the corner because there was so much new stuff going on. My my youngest daughter had a gap year uh, when I was six months into my journey. And, uh, and I said, well, why don't you come out and travel with me f for a few months? And uh, she came to Bangkok, but she was... She was fine traveling with me. Mm, I, my guess is that uh, it was it was partly because she was being treated for the anxiety, and partly because we were together about this, and and she knew she felt safe uh, traveling with me. So uh, during those uh, four months, uh, she didn't have any anxiety at all. She just in, enjoyed herself, and I can still feel that it really helped her grow. At really enjoyed spending time with me and, and learning about the different cultures. And I think this is one of the reasons that she, when she came back, she decided not to study law like it was her plan. But a, a month ago, she started in, in university in Denmark studying anthropology. And I think it's it's partly because of those four months in, uh, in Asia that she came to that decision that she wanted to study anthropology. And so I, I think that had an impact on her. I don't feel that uh, it was more like father-daughter thing. It was, it was more like two adults, even though, of course, I, I, I took care of most of the stuff. It seems as though for Palais, he's put himself under a Benjamin Button spell. The farther he travels, the younger he feels, and he has no plans of stopping anytime soon. Ever since then, uh, the, the, my plan has just grown and grown and grown. In, in the beginning, it was uh, around the world in 80 weeks, a year and a half. That was my plan. Then it became two years and then four years. 
And now it's it's more open ended. I don't know when I'll stop traveling. Normally, I say it's it's when one of my my daughters starts <laughs> producing grandchildren for me, and they're twenty twenty one and twenty four, and they've got no plans of doing that anytime soon. So my guess is I'll be on the road for the next ten fifteen years. The only thing is that when I say that I'm going to be traveling for the next ten fifteen years, uh, actually I've been saying that for a while, and it was only a few weeks ago it dawned on me. Oh my God! In ten fifteen years time, I'm. I'm close to retirement age and and I I just thought okay I'll be this age forever but but it just dawned on me oh my god I'm going to be an old guy or older guy uh, when I stop traveling so uh, so that's that's actually kind of funny because I don't really think of my age that much when when I travel actually in in my career I I had a revelation at some point there were people, my counterparts at the newspaper, had been working there for maybe 25 years, doing the same thing over and over again, repeating themselves every year. And I thought, oh my God, I will never, ever get into my comfort zone like that and just repeating myself. So I made a promise to myself that I would always be able to look myself in the mirror and say, have I grown in the last year as a professional at what I do and as a human being? And, uh, and hopefully I can, I can, I can travel un until the day that I can't move anymore and they put me in a box. As I reach the top of Petron Hill, I inhale the smells of spring air and grilled meat floating in the streets. I dipped into the walkway that would lead me deeper into the park, but I stopped about a hundred paces in. I turned and stared. It was a full view of the city. It was an expansive scene that I was blessed to see every day. I looked over at the city of red rooftops, clustered together like a field of poppies, the gothic spirals of Prague Castle, the turquoise dome of St. Nicholas's Church, the TV tower covered with giant crawling babies on the outskirts of the city. It was the same yesterday. It will be the same tomorrow. And I will love it even more. This was a whole world and only one of the thousands of worlds within a world. My mind started to multiply how many parallel universes were operating on this planet alone. I had never fathomed this before. I felt my brain expand. And being a teen in the States, you kind of believe you know everything. But the pinhole I was looking at the world through started to rip, letting in the sun and burning me with her beauty. My heart squeezed for a moment. It was a solace that could only be understood <laughs> through tears. <laughs> tears of my own existence, tears of my own meaninglessness. <sighs> and tears of gratitude. This world was too big and I'll never understand it all. 
No office job, no dress or apartment filled with IKEA furniture could ever give me a sliver of that wisdom. I breathed it in, reached into my pocket, and felt the folded piece of paper Uma had given me an hour before. I opened it up and stared at the paper. Instructions and validation printed in a language that would always be foreign to me. However, I just got healthcare on my own. A novel concept for a 20-year-old. If I could get healthcare in another continent, I could probably do a lot more things in other countries. The growth we go through isn't a singular moment. It's a series. They build up over time. The gradual slope of a hill, a single gray hair, the solitary leaf that turns orange before the rest. But it isn't quantifiable as, you know, something that I can measure, like, like standing in my kitchen back up against a wall that has a series of tallies of how much I've grown in the last few years. The only way to show my growth is through my actions of helping others, of reacting intentionally and sharing stories. When we travel, we have an internal expansion. Every time I go out abroad, I feel my heart grows in size like the Grinch at Christmas. It takes up more space than I thought was physically possible. And we leave pieces of ourselves around the world. Our skin cells, hair strands, and hangnails are littered all around the globe. We leave traces of ourselves. Tears fall on a train station platform, or saliva passes from one mouth to another. A word could be said to a stranger that links different neurons in their brains. A heart beats in rhythm with a new one. Our brains click into a larger consciousness, an ineffable, interconnected web we are all a part of. When I come back home, people always ask me, well, what did you learn? And I can't help but say that I know less than when I left. After all of the amazing meals, bus rides, new friends, and wild adventures, we'll start to pack our bags and make our way home. On our next episode, we will talk to travelers who have redefined their understandings of home and how they incorporate what they've learned from the world with their future. Next time on Strangers Abroad.